Welcome to the third episode of Important to Me, a leadership podcast where leaders from around the world share their experience of ethical values-based leadership. I am your host, David Benger, and I'm very grateful to the Nizami Ganjavi International Center who has made this podcast possible. Our guest today is Vaira Vika Freiberger, former president of the Republic of Latvia, co-chair of the Nizami Ganjavi International Center, and president of the Club of Madrid. President Vika Freiberger, thank you so much for being with us here today. I'm very excited to have this conversation, so let's just jump right in. Can you talk a little bit about just briefly the outline, the trajectory of your life and um, kind of some of your earliest memories and leaving Latvia and coming back to Latvia and that story? I was born uh, in an independent Latvia uh, shortly before uh, it was invaded by the Soviet Union in 1940. And we had our first uh, Bolshevik uh, occupation with mass deportations and, and murders and, and arrests and, and torture and so on. And my parents got a sense of what the communist system was like. My mother called it a system of lies. Uh, during the war, we were also invaded by the Nazis, who committed atrocities on Latvian soil. They killed a large part of the of our Jewish population. Very few managed to escape. And then the, the communists came back, and uh, Latvia was forcibly uh, under military invasion, uh, incorporated into the Soviet Union for half a century. And my parents left as exiles as the front was advancing. Uh, we were occupied by two armies, both both the Nazis and the communists. And as as the Red Army was advancing and the Nazi army was retreating over our territory, uh, my parents kept moving west with the idea that they wanted to reach out to the west, uh, uh, get somewhere away from from the Russian invasion. Uh, and they were convinced that the League of Nations, of which independent Latvia had been a member, uh, would. Uh, after the end of the war, uh, would uh, give us back our independence, would see that all foreign armies withdrew from our soil and, and Latvia would be independent again. They had no idea of what Roosevelt and Churchill had uh, sort of traded away to Stalin uh, in thanks for his uh, uh, participation in the fight against the Nazis. Uh, which is what was that was the priority, of course, for the Allies. And they they didn't give really two hoots about Eastern Europe, and this is how Eastern Europe wound up behind the Iron Curtain for roughly half a century. And uh, uh, I knew that someday that regime would fall, uh, and I knew that uh, someday Latvia would be free again. But I did not really have hopes of um, ever seeing it in my lifetime, because the Soviet regime seemed, it had uh, nuclear arms, it had a huge uh, uh, space program, it had everything. Uh, I wasn't sure that I would ever see it collapsing, but I knew it must collapse someday. And meanwhile, I, I brought up my children. Uh, I married uh, uh, somebody like me, who was also a, a child of Latin refugees, um, and uh, who had a layer uh, of... Uh, of uh, both being having been in DP camps in Germany uh, and then in a French-speaking country and then meeting in Canada, we brought up our children with the thought of keeping in touch with Latvian culture and our, our heritage, our roots. 
Uh, but meanwhile, of course, they were born in Canada. They were good Canadian citizens, and we were good Canadian citizens too, uh, because uh, well, that was our life. We had no choice. When the choice arose, well, I came back <clears throat> and became president. Can you tell the story briefly of your invitation to return and why you were asked to return originally, and how that became how that that turned into the presidency? I had contacts uh, as much as possible, first of all, uh, with uh, academicians from Latvia because of Expo 67. During Expo 67, the Soviet Union had a pavilion uh, and as part of this pavilion, to show how, how open they were and, and how free people were in the Soviet Union, they had one special week of culture for each of the 15 Soviet republics of the time. Latvia was one of them against its will, but there it was. And so they, uh, we had Latvian artists and, and intellectuals coming to Montreal in 1967. And the Latvians in exile organized a congress, a scientific congress, uh, to which we invited, I guess there were four, four intellectuals, four academicians who were among these guests. Later also we were able to, to hear some, some opera singers and to see some painting exhibitions. And these were our first contacts with Latvians back home who lived under the Soviet regime. Uh, later on, uh, uh, under Gorbachev, uh, groups of artists were allowed to leave the Soviet Union and to travel abroad in groups under a couple of KGB um, overseers, uh, but to sort of make propaganda for the Soviet Union about how free it was under perestroika and, and so on. And we, uh, since Aeroflot uh, would land uh, in Montreal on the North American continent before people would take on other planes to go to Toronto, Vancouver, New York, uh, Boston, wherever, um, we would go to the airport and, and pick these people up and we got to know uh, basically uh, the most distinguished among Latin uh, writers, uh, poets, uh, musicians, uh, you name it, artists, you know. Mm -hmm. And I had, if you like, I had a circle of acquaintances, and you might say fans among them, who at some point, once Latvia was independent, and we had already had two elections for president and another election was coming up, these people thought that having met me during their travels abroad or my travels, because increasingly we were allowed to come to Latvia also as foreigners, uh, as tourists, if you like, to our native land, they thought that I had the sort of profile that wouldn't make a bad president. And so they started taking steps to, first of all, find me a job in Latvia that would allow me to come back and not be a burden on society. And this is why, actually, I think some, some poet friends of mine convinced their friends in government to create a Latvian institute, just like the Swedish institute, like the Goethe Institute and uh, l'Institut Francais, on that sort of model, that Latvia needed a thing like that. And that I, as a polyglot and multilingual person, multicultural person, uh, would be uh, well qualified uh, to to found it and, and to be its founding director. Uh, and they had this at the back of their mind, this idea that if the political uh, circumstances, if the stars aligned themselves in the right way, and that was by no means certain because I was not linked to any political party at all. Um, they thought that they had some hopes of somehow convincing 
uh, we have a parliamentary republic to convince parliamentarians to think of me uh, as a candidate after the official party uh, candidates for each party uh, actually failed to get a majority in a second round of elections. I've never been in a political party. I am not to this day a member of any political party. That's somewhat unusual for head of state. That's remarkable. Um, both before you were in office and during your term and also after, you've taken your ambassadorial role as a representative of Latvia seriously. And I wonder, as a representative of a relatively small country, how do you make sure that Latvia's voice is heard on the world stage and that people take also, in addition to politically, that people take Latvian culture, poetry and art seriously on, on the, in a global forum? Well, you certainly don't do it by shouting louder. That's not the way you get attention. I think that in, uh, it doesn't matter how big your country is or, or in fact in your personal relations. The important thing is to have something to say and have something to show. I always told my compatriots that, you know, for instance, about the Institute of uh, the Latin Institute, what kind of image of Latvia are we going to present? We're going to present the image of what we're able to do. If it so happens that Latvia has proportionately more famous opera singers per capita than anybody in the world, so much the better. You can't, you can't buy it. You can't order it. You can't necessarily, you know, uh, sort of manufacture it in, in two or three years. But, but if it happens to be your strong points, then by all means, uh, toot your horn, you know. But you must have something to toot and you must have something to show and something to say. Okay. What lessons, if any, did you learn from your family that you have cherished and kept with you? The fact that they, they were around, I was immensely grateful because... Uh, um, I, I did lose my father when I was a month old. He he never did see me. He was he was at sea and perished at sea. Uh, and I was always acutely aware of uh, of the possibility of being uh, an orphan. Uh, I was frankly during the war uh, and during the bombings that we lived through in uh, when we arrived in Germany, I was scared to lose my mother. Uh, and uh, I thought I. I I couldn't imagine how I could survive without my mother. That was my panic. And uh, so that basically I was I was just grateful for having a, step, a stepfather and, and having my mother around uh, to look after me because I, I knew it could be otherwise too. What is the most memorable meal you've ever had? We were in in the city of Schwerin, that's in Mecklenburg, in, in, uh, in northern Germany, it was the month of February 1945. The war was drawing to a close, the Red Army was approaching, and the city of Schwerin was uh, uh, surrounded already uh, by the Red Army, and, and food provisions were running very low. And uh, one day, my parents managed to get... There were sort of distribution points where if there was any food, it was distributed to the population. They had managed to get some very small potatoes. Uh, they were green. They're the kind of potatoes that I remember in the countryside my grandmother used to give to her pigs because they taste bitter, because they're green. They've had, they've had the light on them. But these were somehow, I guess they were from, found from some farm, and they were distributed to refugees. And then my mother also stood in line 
uh, at the local hospital where the war wounded were being treated. And the war wounded had the, uh, had the privilege uh, of getting some, some wieners uh, in, their, in their diet to get some protein. But the refugees were given the water in which the wieners had been boiled because that's the best we could get. And uh, and so that that evening we had we had some potatoes, and we had some. Uh, my mother made had we still had uh, she had a sack of flour and she made uh, a gravy uh, with this with this wiener water you might say, and I I thought it was the most delicious thing I ever had in my life. Wow. Um. What role, if any, has faith and religion played in your life? <laughs> um, it has had its ups and downs. <laughs> I had moments when I truly felt inspired. And uh, I remember when I had my, my confirmation. Um, as a Lutheran, uh, we have our confirmation at the age of 16, 17. I was 17. And the, and the minister... Uh, gives uh, a quotation from uh, from the Bible, uh, sort of as a uh, as he blesses each of the uh, communicants. And my my verse from was from uh, uh, from Isaiah, and I'm not sure I can quote it correctly in uh, in English because uh, it was told me in in Latvian. But it's it's a bit in Isaiah, I think, chapter nine possibly. Where for those who rely on the Lord, uh, they will rise up on wings as if eagles. Uh, they will walk and not get tired. Uh, they will run and not uh, not uh, get out of breath. Something like that. I wish I could remember the exact. It's a beautiful passage in Isaiah. It's worth looking up. And that sense of being uplifted by divine sort of benevolence or 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 or, or help. Uh, it's a sort of feeling that I've had at times, but then I had the dark night of the soul at many periods of my life when I felt completely abandoned. I felt that God had turned his face away from me and I was all alone with my problems and all the pain. Or, and uh, so I've had my ups and downs. I've had both a high uh, sense of, of feeling in, in tune and in communion with the divine element of feeling completely separate from it at different times. And in those dark night of the soul moments, what do you do? Where do you go to either get advice or to get a confidence booster to somehow lift yourself up out of that space? I've never found advice from others very helpful, frankly. I think information from others, sharing their experience and so on, but somebody concretely telling me, you in your current situation, with your concrete problem, this is what you should do. I have found, to my sorrow, that other people cannot give you the best advice for you because they can't help. They're in a different skin from you. And and they will look at your situation from their point of view. I found, for instance, when 
my parents took me out of school at 16. I thought it was extremely unwise of them. It, it, it was very, it cost me very dearly. I thought that it was a, a tragic mistake, but I couldn't do anything to convince them. And then I realized that uh, there are times when even those whom you consider who, who should be on your side and supporting you will not necessarily do so. And even your best friend may wish to give you their best advice, but it's advice for them. It's not advice for you. So I'm afraid that in, in those moments, you are left alone with your inner self, which is a strange concept. That's when you discover it. Curiously enough, you see, you don't even know you have an inner self unless you have trials and tribulations and, 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 and something. If things are running very smoothly, your, <laughs> you might say your superficial self just coasts along. And everything is just fine and tra-la-la, you know, you, you go along in, in life. It's like in the tarot card, the first card, zero, is, is the fool, you know, walking along gaily, uh, not, not worrying about anything. When something goes wrong, you are forced, you are pushed to, deep, to reach deep inside yourself. And you discover that there's something there. That's a pleasant surprise, you might say, or a comfort. Uh, something is there. There's a there's a voice, a feeling, a, a sense, a sense of strength. There's a there's a resource. And, uh, learning how to reach that resource is is a great art and skill. And I think we spend all our lives trying to do that. You say that ultimately, at the moment of decision, all you have is your own inner reserve, your instinct, your own experience on which to act. And yet, you you spoke about the value of hearing from other people's experience and stories and inf for information gathering purposes. And I wonder, how have you gone about choosing mentors in your life? Um, have, have you ever found that a mentor has disappointed you, for example? And also, how would you recommend a young person approach someone whom they admire for a mentor relationship? Well, you see, Dave, in my youth, mentor was the old king who took Telemachus, the son of Odysseus, under his wing, while his father was wandering the, all the seas and, uh, and experiencing all the wonders of the Odyssey. So Telemachus had a mentor who looked after him, because Athena also wanted to protect him. But I never had a mentor. But curiously enough, I had several experiences in my life where Precisely because I had been lucky to read the Odyssey when I was seven years old, to get a, a Latvian a translation of, of the Odyssey uh, during my last month uh, in Latvia, uh, when I had just turned seven. And that stayed with me. And the thing I noticed there is that Athena not only sent mentor to help Telemachus, but she appeared to Telemachus and also to Odysseus at times, under various disguises. In other words, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the ancient Greeks saw the gods as walking among us. And I think my ancestors, my pre-Christian ancestors, what I can see from our folk songs, they also felt that, for instance, the goddess of fate, Lima, or the goddess of good luck, walks among people. And I had experiences where I had three times, I, I kid you not, three times in my life, 
I, as a child who felt that I, I realized I must, whatever the difficulties, I must get as much education as I possibly can, because that's, that's the path for me. Uh, I had brick walls in front of me, absolute brick walls, impossible to move forward. And believe it or not, a woman unknown to me, a stranger, would literally walk up to me on the street and say, hello, aren't you so-and-so? I think I saw you somewhere. I remember you. How are you doing? And I said, terrible. I made a terrible boundary. I have a serious problem. I need to get to high school to Casablanca and we are out in the country and I don't know how to get to school, etc. And miraculously, just like Telemachus had Athena walking into his life to help him, I did not have, in my days, one did not have mentors, one had teachers, one had people who inspired you, whom you admire, who might say a kind word to you or give a word of encouragement or something like that. Mentoring is a very recent idea. In, 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 as I say, I had the classics and I know what the classics had, but curiously enough, what, what the Odyssey, what, what, what Homer uh, says in his epics, uh, about the gods walking among us and helping us out in, in, in moments of desperation, I have at, at least three very striking experiences in my life where a strange woman helped me to continue my education. That is remarkable. It's like a fairy tale, absolutely. Well, um, and so, and you never found out who this, who these women were or how they came into your life? Yes, yes. Happy coincidence. Extremely coincidence. Wow. Um, what, if any, would you say is the value of routine in your life? Do you sort of do the same thing every day, every week? Um, you know, wake up at the same time every morning, sort of set aside the same hours for work, something like that? I have uh, found that when... I was forced to have a routine, it was more of a help than a hindrance, although sometimes it's also a nuisance. For instance, I used to be late for school an awful lot, both in grade school uh, and in high school. And I would get uh, scolded for it or, or punished, and it, it uh, I don't know how it, but I was always late. Uh, that sort of thing. But uh, when I was president, I discovered that having protocols and having uh, my, my daily schedule and my weekly schedule and my monthly schedule talked out with my advisors and, and the head of chancery and so on and, and the foreign ministry and whatnot, planning well ahead of time, planning uh, how I would spend every minute of my every day. After all, you see, when you are an elected official, not the president for life, but, but for a limited period. The kind of presidents that we have in the Club de Madrid, of which I was president for, for two terms, we are the kind who pack our suitcases, you see, and leave after our term is up. And so when you are that kind of president, I felt at least that every, every minute of every day should be spent usefully. That's, that's my, my window of opportunity that I've been given in history. So I, I must make the best of it. But it takes planning, it takes discipline. Uh, and, uh, and the protocol is a, is a big help because if I have, say, uh, um, uh, three uh, different ambassadors 
coming to hand in their, their papers of accreditation on the same day. You do not want to keep any of them waiting. Uh, the the uh, aide de camp uh, opens the door, uh, gives you a signal that it's five minutes before the end of the of the interview with this ambassador, and so you you wind down the conversation, you say politely uh, farewell, and then you're ready for the next person. So it's all, everything runs smoothly. So uh, routine, just like protocol, can be a great help to you. But one must watch out that where you do have choice, not to let yourself to be smothered by it. Mm. However, I do not approve of the what we hear sometimes uh, being told by by help gurus that in order to be creative and to get your right hemisphere working and so on, change everything right with your left hand, uh, get out of bed on the wrong side and so on. No. I think it's silly. It's a waste of energy. I think that there are routines that make it easier for your brain to do more creative things rather than contrary. I do not want to be creative in tying my shoelaces. I want to be creative in something that matters more. That makes a lot of sense. Um, speaking of creativity, um, a lot of countries, especially countries that are coming out of a kind of um, almost a colonial sort of experience, perhaps. I don't know if that's exactly the right term to use for Latvia's experience in the 90s, but countries that are newly independent, let's say, um, work hard to recreate their narrative, uh, both for their own people and for the outside world as a sovereign independent nation. And to do so, they frequently look back to history to find heroes to venerate. When nations create heroes to tell their story, often they look to people who, historically speaking, were flawed, uh, people who may have done great things in the interest of nationalism or patriotism, but have also done um, pretty terrible things, perhaps in their personal lives, perhaps had committed atrocities in their role as leaders. And I wonder how, when you create a narrative, how do you reconcile the flawed heroes? Here in the United States, we're having a major national conversation about who we lionize and whom we choose not to memorialize today. And I wonder, when you're, when you're creating that narrative for a newly independent nation, how do you think through that process? Narrative is difficult things to get right. And uh, just like an individual has to modify the narrative of their life as they grow older and have more experience, a nation as well cannot exist its whole history with the same narrative. Uh, every epoch, every historical period will have its narrative. And that will be the best that the people of that age and of that time were able to produce. And uh, countries that were in advance in some, uh, in some respects on others can be justifiably proud of having done it. Uh, if, uh, for instance, I think of Switzerland, where Henri Dunant uh, created the Red Cross, uh, introduced the concept of uh, looking after the wounded on battlefields, regardless of their uniform, simply as, as human beings who lie there bleeding and see if you can save them. That sort of hero, uh, he may not have been a hero in his day. 
I understand that he died a poor man, uh, not recognized, and, and, and I don't know whether he was good to his wife uh, and kind to his neighbors, but I certainly know that he introduced something in history that needed to be done and that to this day remains something valuable. And frankly, it doesn't matter about the other things. He may have had crooked teeth and, 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 and I don't know. Uh, so what? Uh, did he do something worthwhile? And when people have done something worthwhile, they merit, they deserve that we remember them for the thing that they did that was worthwhile. But we should not imagine that because they did one thing worthwhile, that they were, if you like, God's perfection walking on this earth uh, and, and that we have to bow down uh, or get on our knees in front of them and worship them. I think worship of, of that kind is unhealthy, period. Uh, I find that worship of, of sort of um, fashion stars or film stars or rock stars and whatnot. Uh, if you like somebody's music and you, you, you love them, that's, that's great. But if you start worshipping somebody and taking their opinions about how you should run your life, I think you're in trouble. I don't think one should worship. Mm. Except at, at the really uh, altars of higher ideals. <laughs> in a very accurate sense. That's, that's a beautiful image, worshipping at the altar of higher ideals. I like that. <laughs> um, where do you get your news? Um, are there any particular books, films, publications, podcasts that you look to? And has that changed since you were in a political position? Well, when I was uh, president, I spent a considerable proportion of my time getting up on, on the news in my country. Uh, every evening I watched all the TV programs. Every morning I went over the printed press. Uh, I had both printouts and I wanted to get the, the actual physical magazines and newspapers. I would leaf through them to see where the article was. Was it on page six in small letters at the bottom of the page or was it on page two or on page one? You see, that makes a difference. It's not just the content, but where it is being presented to the public. Uh, and of course, I had to, uh, I kept getting briefings uh, from uh, from our foreign ministry and, and from our services about events in the world. Uh, I followed world news. Uh, so it, it was a, a considerable part of being president is being informed. There's no doubt about that. I think a CEO of a company also spends a considerable amount of time being informed. When I was a professor, before every lecture that I went to, we had these three-hour lectures uh, twice a week. Uh, that sort of courses. For uh, the courses I had, psycholinguistics and psychopharmacology for undergraduates, these were fields that developed in my time. They were I, I introduced these courses in the university that didn't exist before. And every year I would be reading madly the latest scientific publications to make sure that every topic that I approached uh, in, my, in my three credit course uh, that I had read the latest literature pertaining to the topic that I was going to talk about. So anything that you do, getting informed, but you have to go to different sources for different purposes. That is obvious. And nowadays, of course, a big challenge is if you go on the electronic media, you are risking uh, meeting bots and, and, and um, 
uh, all sorts of uh, uh, of nasty creatures uh, masquerading as humans uh, and fake news and, and, and false news and disinformation. The more we have access to information, the more we have access to disinformation. And countries like Finland have already compulsory courses in their schools about children learning to interpret inter, uh, interpreting news. And I think in Latvia we're introducing that as well into our educational system. It is going to be a big challenge for coming generations. That's such an important skill. Uh, you're right. It's so difficult to tell truth from fiction right now, especially as world leaders themselves buy into a lot of what is clearly fictional um, and dangerous, in fact. Um, Irresponsible, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Perhaps a, a somewhat lighter question. If you can invite any three people living or dead, but not fictional, to dinner at your home, whom would you invite and what would you talk about? I have no uh, wish list of, of dream people whom uh, I would like to invite. You know why? Because life itself has given me so many wonderful opportunities of meeting very rare people of all sorts, high and low. Uh, famous uh, or unknown, uh, that I remain open, if you like, to, to the next invitation uh, or the next acquaintance that, that I will meet and look forward uh, to, uh, to talking to them. I, I do not have a wish list of, of favorites whom I would place above all others. I remain ready to be charmed, you see, by new, by new faces again and again. That's a lovely sentiment. Um, in the spirit of Marcel Proust, um, I've been ending these interviews with a kind of questionnaire. So I'm going to move into that portion here. Um, what is your favorite book? The last one that I have read and found interesting. And I have read a great many books in my life, so that there's a lot of them. Can you share which the last book you found read uh, th that you read and found interesting is right now? Well, it was not the very last one, but uh, I, I read a book about why the Neanderthals went extinct and Homo sapiens survived. A fascinating question. Hmm. Okay. What is your favorite film? The English Patient. Okay. What is your favorite work of art or piece of music? I have different favorites for different kinds of moods, but one that never fails is Boccherini's, uh, uh, the Fandango from Boccherini's Quintet. Yes. Someday you're feeling low, just put that on and boy, you'll feel bouncy again. Okay. There's also, I have a really favorite, uh, a terrific uh, recording of, uh, and uh, music of the Andes. Wow. You speak several different languages fluently. In any of those languages, what is your favorite word? Amor. Okay. What is your favorite virtue? Honor, which nowadays people wouldn't know if they met it on the street somewhere. What quality do you appreciate most in your friends? Loyalty, certainly. Loyalty. Loyalty. 
because I remain loyal to them, so I expect loyalty, or at least I hope for loyalty in return. Who are your favorite fictional heroes? When I was a little girl, I was very th thrilled by Latvian folk tales, where they had two heroines, the true daughter and the orphan girl. And since I knew from my mother's friends that I was supposed to be a semi-orphan because my father had died, I identified with the orphan girl. And she was always the one who was more beautiful, who did the right thing, who got rewarded in the end, and the true daughter got punished. So, of course, I identified with the orphan girl. Um, you've attempted many different professions throughout your career. What, a prep, what profession, other than the ones you have attempted, would you like to attempt, or do you wish you had attempted? I had, uh, uh, after my little sister died in the, in the refugee camp, uh, I had determined that I, I would like to save lives and be a doctor. And I was actually admitted to the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto and then changed my mind at the last minute and went for psychology because I thought people's minds needed more, more curing than people's bodies, actually. But both actually are, are the same. I would have loved to be a plant breeder, actually, because my hobby, my hobby is working with, with plants and houseplants. And being a plant breeder is, is a dream that if I had a chance, I'd, I'd love to do that. Of the objects that you own, what would you say is the most sentimentally valuable? Uh, when you've been a refugee, you, you're faced with a, with a choice as to what am I going to take with me, seeing as I can only carry what I can in my two hands. And I, when I was a little girl, I was, I was given the choice as to what to take, my new doll or my old doll. And uh, I took my old doll, and I still have her. She's she's really uh, she was a cloth doll in the first place with a rubber head, so she's in very bad shape. But she represents my choice for uh, something I was fond of, not the shiny and the new, but but the one that had been with me uh, as a companion. You see. Oh. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive there? Well, I imagine that uh, the experience would be something like the experiences of heightened consciousness that I have been fortunate to experience in my life. And uh, and the feeling then is, it's, it's not like having, uh, I don't think I will encounter somebody uh, like uh, a person uh, with or without a beard and, and, and that sort of thing. But I rather think that it will be like an oceanic feeling of, uh, of a cosmic intelligence and love. Mm. Well, President Vika Freiberger, I am so, so thankful for your time. Um, this has been a wonderfully interesting conversation for me, and I'm so grateful that you've done this. Um, thank you again so very much. Thank you for talking to me. It's always <laughs> nice to talk to somebody who sounds interested. <laughs> oh, no, that was that was absolutely fascinating. I'm going to be thinking about that conversation for quite some time. Thank you so much for listening to episode three of Important to Me, a leadership podcast. This episode was recorded on July 8th, 2020, 
and released on July 23, 2020.